Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the mistakes that people make in trying to size me up is that I'm a religious person, which couldn't be further from the truth, but I often get that. Oh, you're, you're a religious person. They see my Bible. You're a religious person. And I quickly get on that and say, couldn't be further from the truth. I am not a religious person. And the reason being is because religion has the connotation of being about a system rather than about a person. A system rather than about a relationship. One dictionary defines religion as a set of religious beliefs or practices, usually involving a devotional and ritual observance. But following Jesus Christ is so different. It's more about Him than it is about those things. We might do some of those things, or certain ones might do some of those things more than others, but the core is not those things. The core is Jesus Himself. And Jesus Christ is God's refreshing solution to man's failed religious attempts. Eli Jones, called E. Stanley Jones, who was a missionary to India, put it this way. He said, Christianity has its creeds, but it's not a creed. Christianity has its rights, R-I-T-E-S, but it's not a right. Christianity has its observances and institutions, but it's not an institution. Says Jones, Christianity is Christ and our response to him. Now, there is a concerted effort by some in our country especially, but around the world, and that is a tend toward secularism and with that Darwinian idealism, trying to make the world less religious. Well, they're on a boat to nowhere because 86% or greater of the 7 billion people on earth would be considered religious. That is, they have some belief of some kind in some supernatural entity or system. 86%. Says one author, religious people build cathedrals and build pyramids. And even today, some people slaughter goats and chickens on altars. Religious people sometimes will forego certain foods. Some are even willing to die for their religious beliefs. But, as I think we're going to see here, It can be dangerous because people have not only died for their religious beliefs, but killed others for their religious beliefs. I don't think I can say it any more strongly than this. God hates religion. Religion sends people to hell. Let me sum it up this way. There's a simple definition. Here's religion. Me coming to God on my terms. That's religion. Me coming to God on my terms, my agenda. I decide what God is like. I decide how God should be approached. It's me coming to God on my terms. Rather than God presenting His Son and we coming to God on His terms. There's a big difference between following Jesus and religion. Karl Marx once said, Religion is the opiate of the masses. I agree with him. Religion is the opiate of the masses.
But Jesus is the Savior of the world. Huge difference. Huge difference. Did you know there was only one religion that God ever gave to mankind? And that was Judaism. And its rituals and its observances and uh, its um, uh, rites and institutions are written about in books like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That sacrificial system by which a man or a woman would approach God, that's the religion that God gave to man. It's the only one He ever gave. But then, then He sent His Son to fulfill it all, to complete it all. That's what Jesus meant when He said, don't think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy. I have come to fulfill or to complete. Teleos. Bring it to its completed end. Now we're in chapter 7 of the Gospel of John. And in chapter 7, we see there's a clash. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. There are the religious leaders, the religious elite, let's call them. And when Jesus and the religious people get together, there is a clash over the very nature of truth itself. It's a very plain and very revealing section. Here's the background. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. And just so you know what that means and what it was like, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of three annual festivals that... If you, well, if you were a, a Jewish male and you lived within a 20-mile radius of Jerusalem, you had to be in Jerusalem. They were called the Convocation Feasts, where everybody gets together like one huge religious party in Jerusalem. The Feast of Tabernacles was the festival that celebrated how God took care of their forefathers in the desert when they were wandering from Egypt through the wilderness on the way to the Promised Land. And they were out there under the stars, with the elements, and God provided for them. So, for seven days a year, one week a year, the people lived in tabernacles, or huts, or booths, little lean-tos, shacks, made out of leafy branches. And so they might do their business during the day, but they would all come and live and sleep in this booth every night. They'd camp out. So, if this festival were done today like that, and In Jerusalem, it would probably be called the Jerusalem Camping and Recreational Vehicle Convention. Everybody is there camping out. You'd see booths along the roads, in the alleys, on top of rooftops, everywhere. That's the feast that Jesus comes up to. But what he does and what he says is very revealing about the nature between following him and religious belief. Let's begin in verse 14 of chapter 7. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. He who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the people answered and said, You have a demon. 
Can you imagine saying that to Jesus Christ? Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So here's Jesus in the temple. The religious elite clash with him over the nature of truth. And we see the difference just in this little interchange between them. And I want to show you here three things when it comes to the difference between Jesus Christ and religious systems and how to know the difference. Number one, doctrine is essential. You see that word twice in our text, doctrine is essential. Okay, so Jesus goes up to the temple, up to the feast, in the middle of the feast. We don't know what day it was, maybe third day, maybe fourth day, we don't know. But the first thing Jesus does when he gets to Jerusalem is what? He teaches them. He doesn't form a healing line and heal them. He doesn't feed the multitude like he did in Galilee. He doesn't present himself as the political king that they wanted him to do in chapter 6. He comes into the temple and he teaches them. What does he teach them? Doctrine. He used that word twice, doctrine. Now let's uh, dig a little bit deeper. Look at verse 14 and notice the word taught. I'm going to give you a little bit of a linguistic lesson. The word taught is the word in Greek, didasko. Didasko means instruction or didactic truth, information being passed on, didasko. Then go to verse 16 and notice the word doctrine. That's the word didake, very similar Didache, doctrine, the wholesome teaching. The wholesome teaching. Something else. The word doctrine is mentioned a lot throughout the New Testament. I discovered just doing a little digging this week, looking at these two words together. In the four Gospels, Jesus is said to teach, using this word, teach, didasco, 36 times. 36 times Jesus is said to teach. 47 times Jesus goes by the name of the teacher. Didaskalos. Same root word. 33 times in the entire New Testament, the word doctrine appears. Hold to this doctrine. Obey this doctrine. Here's this doctrine. So when you put all of these things together, over 80 times where Jesus is called the teacher or teaching and doctrine is talked about, the the obvious thing is this. Do you think, from a biblical perspective, that doctrine is important? Would that be fair to say? Would that be fair to say doctrine is important? Because the Bible mentions it a lot. So if that's so true, then why is it that so many people, including some Christians, like to talk about doctrine like it's some dirty word? Oh, I'm not into doctrine. You're not? Really? Since doctrine means teaching, good, wholesome, teaching truth. No, I'm not into doctrine. That's that technical stuff. I'm just into Jesus. Well, Jesus is into doctrine. Doctrine is essential. It's sort of like this. Whenever you buy a gadget, 
Now, I like gadgets, and I don't always buy them when they come out, but I, I'm intrigued. I'm always intrigued. And so I'll look at it. And if I ever buy the gadget, I know what I'm going to get. I'm going to get a box, and I'm going to find in it, number one, a gadget. Number two, peripherals, little cables and things that plug into the gadget. And number three, a manual that nobody reads. <laughs> Unless the gadget breaks. Then it's all about the manual. You know, that's how people live their lives, right? God gives us the manual on life, but it's like unopened until something breaks. Jesus, our Savior, in the temple, teaching doctrine because doctrine is essential. It was God through the prophet Hosea who said, My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. They're destroyed from lack of knowledge. They don't know the truth. The early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine or teaching. Same word, didasko or didake. Paul said to young Timothy, until I come, give attention to reading and exhortation and doctrine. Nothing will help you see through the maze of religion better than just doctrine, truth about who Jesus is. However, whenever truth gets sidelined and doctrine gets marginalized you know what you know what happens you know what sets up religion sets up house right there i've even heard of people who talk about their church this way oh we're not really into teaching at our church we don't teach the bible it's not really a bible teaching church it's about creating an experience you know in some churches seriously if you were to teach the bible it would be like A shock to their system. (laughs) Overload. I kid you not. I kid you not. I got a call from a pastor in the Chicago area. And it was such a sincere call. He said, Skip, I listen to the program, your program, every day on the radio station. I so want to teach the people, my church, I want to teach them the Bible. Now, I'm on the other end going, I don't know what to say. Here's a pastor saying, I want to teach my congregation the Bible. So I'm thinking, so like, why don't you? And so I ask him, so like, why don't you? <laughs> that's what I was thinking. That's what I asked. And he said, they allow me to speak for 15 minutes. I'm thinking, I, I, can't, I don't even clear my throat in 15 minutes. <laughs> they allow me to speak 15 minutes. And, and I can't get really too heavy on doctrinal, biblical. I could never teach through the Bible. He said, if I were to teach through the Bible, I would split the church. It was a sad conversation. And that's the reason we, we plow deeply here. That's the reason we tell you the background and the setting and the language. Because, frankly, my goal is to make you the best fed and best loved congregation around. That's why we plow deeply. Here's Jesus Christ, and he sat and he taught in the temple. Now, I do want to just make a a further point about teaching. Teaching, as I see it, is a bit different than preaching, to proclaim truth. Even though we're all called to preach the gospel and, and preachers should preach the gospel. I look at it this way. Once an unbeliever has been preached to and receives Christ, now that young believer must be taught what it means to follow Jesus Christ. But in many places, 
It's not teaching, it's preaching. It's loud, it's emotional, it's hoot, it's holler, it's, it's all about that. But no teaching. There might be a lot of exhortation, you need to do this more, you need to do that more, and the pe- poor people are going, could somebody just tell me and teach me how to do that? Teaching. There was a Native American Indian who went into a church that uh, lacked biblical content and the pastor made up for it in that capacity. A lot of shouting and pulpit pounding and more shouting and running back and forth and pulpit pounding. And at the end, people loved it. And they said, boy, that guy preached up a storm. Preached up a storm. They said that to the, the old Native American Indian. He preached up a storm. And they said, well, what do you think about it? The old, um, the old man said six words. High wind, big thunder, no rain. That was a storm. High wind, big thunder, no rain. Jesus taught doctrinal truth. Verse 15 sort of sounds like a compliment, but it is really in the original the idea of a derogatory statement. The Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters having never studied? Now, it sounds like they're going, wow, like we're so impressed. This guy knows a lot. He's so smart. Where do you get this stuff? That may be, but everything I've read says this is a derogatory statement for the word letters here is the word grammata, which refers specifically to rabbinical study of Old Testament writings. You know what they're saying? They're saying, this guy never went to one of our schools. He didn't go to one of our rabbi colleges. Who does he think he is? So if I may take a little liberty, here's the emphasis of that. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? Now, I smile at this, because they're all hung up on letters, and they're talking to the Word (laughs) of life. The Word made flesh. And they're bummed out that he didn't go to Hebrew University. And I go, so? But that's the first and major point is, Doctrine is essential. Here's the second. Discernment is critical. Verse 17, notice this. Jesus continues, If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know, or be able to tell the difference between, or discern, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Now, before we unravel that verse and the next one, verse 18, would you go down to verse 24, I think this is a very neglected text, Jesus says to them. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Don't don't give me a superficial judgment, but something that is an honest and fair judgment. Please understand what he's saying in this command. He's He's not saying don't judge. He's saying, don't judge unfairly, don't judge superficially. But he is saying, do judge rightly, fairly, honestly. Did you get that? Jesus Christ, your Savior and mine, is telling this crowd, judge rightly. I'm making this point because inevitably, our minds go to a passage of Scripture whenever we hear this, and we're sort of hung up on this, some of us, on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus said, judge rightly not lest you be judged. So here Jesus is saying, judge rightly, but then he's saying over there, don't judge. 
And so why is it that we get hung up over there thinking we can never say anything with any conviction about anything at all because that's judgmental? Yeah, he said in Matthew chapter 7, judge not lest you be judged. What did he mean? Simply this. No one has the right to harshly, censoriously pass any kind of judgment about anyone's motives. But at the same time, we must evaluate what we hear in order to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong. It's called discernment in the New Testament. It's explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. Listen to this text. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things. All things. Spiritual people judge everything, but they do it rightly, righteously. In some circles, if you have uh, strong convictions about something and you go so far as to make those convictions known by verbalizing them, you will be called judgmental. Now, how do you think Elijah the prophet would have done if he felt that way? Do you think he would have ever confronted King Ahab or Queen Jezebel with what they were doing wrong? Do you think he would? He, no, he'd have gone into the throne room and said, excuse me, like a little milk toast, excuse me, Mr. King, but, um, well, I sort of feel that God maybe sort of wants this, but you know what? I don't want to be dogmatic. So whatever you feel is right in your heart. That's what he would have done. And the king would have gone, what was that all about? What just happened? Do, do you think Paul, if he felt that way, do you think he would have ever stood up against the legalists called Judaizers or John or Jude against the Gnostics that were invading the church? No, they've made very, very clear, discerning statements about truth and error. I, I'm just making a plea here for discernment, something that is lacking in much of the church, and I use that generically speaking, the church at large. Why, why do I make a plea for discernment? Because Jesus warned us. He said, beware of false prophets. Listen to what he said. They will come to you in sheep's clothing. Do you get that? They'll come to you. It's not like you have to get up in the morning and go, I'm going to find me some false prophets. You don't have to. Just stay where you are. They'll come to you. They'll seek you out. They'll find you. They'll knock on your doors. They'll appear on your television sets all slick and nice. And you'll wonder, look at how many people they have listening to that. They'll come to you. And they come, Jesus said, not as wolves, but as sheep. They don't come go, They come like this, bah. (laughs) And you go, that's a sheep. Listen to what he just said, that's a sheep. Remember the, remember the um, Wizard of Oz? How many of you remember the Wizard of Oz? Okay. You don't, some of you don't remember the Wizard of Oz? You didn't raise your hand? That's like an American to not remember the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> remember the scene in the Wizard of Oz? We're so afraid of the wizard. And, and then Dorothy saw this little old man behind the curtain pulling the levers. And in pulling the curtain back, it revealed the truth. The Bible repeatedly says, pull back the curtain. Pull back the curtain. Discern. Tell the difference. Judge a righteous judgment. Now, having said that, having seen that commanded, now go back to verse 17 and 18, and here it's explained. Jesus said to them, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. That's verse 16. Next one. If anyone wants to do his, God's will, he will know. 
concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself, that is, he becomes the basis of the statement. I am now making a statement as a philosopher about the meaning of life. That comes from himself, Jesus said. He seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. They're saying, look, I'm simply giving you what my father gave to me. I didn't make this up. I'm passing on the truth that comes from God the Father himself. Now, in verse 17 and 18 are very important truths. They teach you how to get discernment, how to tell the difference. Two things are required. A willing mind, that's verse 17. A worshipful heart, that's verse 18. A willing mind, I want to do God's will, and a worshipful heart. It's not about me, it's all about him. That's what's required for discernment. See, it works this way. When a person honestly, authentically humbles himself or herself before the Lord and says, I genuinely want to know what God's will is, that person will be a discerning person. That's how it works. We get a lot of people, and we have for a lot of years in our offices every week for counseling. We're happy to do it. We feel that we owe the Christian body at large the ability to give them the scriptures and to disciple them through a counseling environment, biblical counseling. But oftentimes we begin our sessions with a single question and we wait for the response because that will determine if we're going to have this session or not. The question is simply this. Are you willing to do God's will, whatever it is, once you discover what it is from this book, from the Bible? Are you willing to do God's will, whatever you discover that will to be. If they say, absolutely, that's why I'm here. Whatever the Lord wants, I want to do that. Great. Now we have a basis to move forward on. If, on the other hand, the person says, well, it depends on what it is. Well, that was easy because we're done. That's it. If you are willing to do God's will, you'll know the difference between truth and in error. You see, some people will come in for counseling with their agenda, wanting to find verses to add to the verses they've already found that they think complements their way, their will, their agenda. And they just want the pat on the back and the approval and affirmation of the guy on the other side of the desk. Donald Gray Barnhouse put it this way, I can say from experience that 95% of knowing the will of God consists in being prepared to do it before you know what it is. Willing mind, worshipful heart. Willing mind, worshipful heart. And you know that theme is repeated and seen in many other places in the Bible. Here's just a sampling of two. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says, If you seek the Lord your God, you will find Him if you look for Him with all of your heart, with all of your mind. Here's another one, David, to his son Solomon, counseled in 1 Chronicles 28. Worship and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. Whole heart, willing mind, same idea. For the Lord sees every heart and understands and knows every plan and thought. If you seek him, you will find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. A willing mind... And a worshipful heart 
will produce a discerning individual. Turn that coin around. The opposite is also true. One seeking to have his own will, his own way, will fall for anything and anyone who peddles some new teaching about how you should be prosperous and it's all about you and your best life now. Everything will fall, fall, fall. So, doctrine is essential. Discernment is crucial. And here's the third point, sort of comes to the core of this message. Religion can be harmful. You go, boy, Skip, those are pretty strong words. Well, they're, they're meant to be. They're meant to be for two reasons. Number one... It can justify evil. Look at verse 19. Jesus speaking, Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? It's amazing because some of these religious folks like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other C's that were around at that time prided themselves in being purveyors spokesmen and guardians of the laws of Moses. All about the law of Moses. But didn't there something in the law of Moses about thou shalt not kill? Yeah, yeah, I think that's like the sixth commandment. So here they were priding themselves in the law, our religion, willing to kill Jesus Christ. That's why he mentions this. It justifies their evil. Religion can do that. Now, the very next verse, they deny it. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. But verse 1 tells us plainly, John writes, the reason Jesus stayed up in Galilee and didn't go to Judea is because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And go ahead and look at verse 25. Some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? So they let the cat out of the bag. Here's the point. You have a perfect example here of how religion can do harm and even kill people in the name of its religion. This isn't new. This isn't new. It's been going on a long time. I'm reading a book right now. It's taken me months. I'm not even done. I'm only on page like 800. So it's a long book. It's it's on the Crusades. I, I wanted to bone up on that period of history. It just amazed me that in 1095, when Pope Urban II made a call for Christian soldiers to leave Europe and go to the Holy Land, reclaiming the lands for Christ, expunging the lands from its evil inhabitants, that he gave them permission, in fact, the calling, to kill people in the name of Christ, guaranteeing them that if they were killed in the process, they would instantly go to heaven, it would be a magical indulgence for them and their family, And the call to arms during that time, and I quote, is fight for the salvation of your souls. That's a dark blot on the history of Christendom at large. Now fast forward to the day we opened our eyes to a new threat in our world that a lot of us knew nothing about, September 11, 2001, when 20 people in the name of their religion decided to board jets and crash them into public buildings, killing thousands of people in the name of their religion. And we're discovering now that's a huge threat because there's a number of people, a number of people, a lot of people who want to destroy what they call the great Satan. That's you. You're the great Satan. America is the great Satan. must be destroyed in the name of our religion. 
So religion can be harmful. It justifies evil. Second thing it does, it minimizes good. Verse 21, Jesus answered them. This is classic. Jesus answered them and said, I did one work and you all marvel. Now what's he referring to? I'll tell you what he's referring to. He's referring to an incident that occurred a year and a half before this Feast of Tabernacles. A year and a half before this, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover previous to last one, a year and a half before this. He's in Jerusalem, goes to the pool of Bethesda, finds a man who for 38 years has been in a paralyzed condition. And he walks up to him and goes, hey, do you want to get better? And the guy has all sorts of excuses. Well, nobody can put me in the pool. And it went on and on. Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk. You know what day that was? It was the Sabbath day. Jesus did that on purpose. It wasn't like Jesus thought, oh, I forgot, it's the Sabbath. Oops. It was all planned. It was the Sabbath day. And so that man rolled up his little bed, went into the temple to thank God before he went home, because he can walk now. And the religious people come up to him and say, you can't carry that on this, this day. It's the Sabbath day. And they climbed all over his case and Jesus' case because he healed on the Sabbath. That's what he's referring to. I did one work and you all marvel. Verse 22, Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses. It went all the way back to Abraham, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Um, Jesus is uh, arguing like a rabbi. Let me just sort of set this up for you. This little dialogue here is Jesus arguing from lesser to greater, from circumcision to healing. Now, here was the problem. The problem was there were two laws in the Old Testament that seemed contradictory. One was the law of the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, the Bible says you do no customary work. The other law in Leviticus 13 was the law of circumcision that says every male child born in Israel on the eighth day after his birth must be circumcised. Well, you got to know the kids don't schedule the time they're going to be born. They're just born. And eight days afterwards may fall on the Sabbath. Which means you'll break the Sabbath if you do the ordinary work that you do with every other male child and circumcise that child. But Jesus said, you're willing to perform circumcision on the Sabbath and really break the law of Moses. But one of the rabbis had said this, and I quote, great is circumcision. It overrides even the rigor of the Sabbath. So Jesus argues from lesser to greater, saying, in effect, you're willing to mutilate a child's flesh on the Sabbath, and you're mad at me that I healed a man's flesh on the Sabbath. Because religion minimizes good. Jonathan Swift, back in 1711, wrote this. We have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. I think that sort of crystallizes what's happening right here and shows the difference between Jesus and the system. Now, in closing, I want to show you four other fundamental differences between religion and the gospel. Sort of summing it all up, here's four points if you're taking notes. Number one, religion emphasizes the outward. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ emphasizes the inward. Notice this is all about outward things here. Circumcision. The ritual. Did you go to the rabbinical school that we have sanctioned? All about outward stuff. All about the facade. What it looks like. You remember on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, when you guys pray, don't pray like the religious people. Because they love to pray out in the open. Out on the street corners. So they can be seen by people. All about the outward. Again, look at verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance. Don't make it about appearance. Don't make it about outward stuff. There are some, even churches, who pride themselves on how they look outwardly. Do I look holy enough? Here, I'm going to put this thing on. Is that... Not, not, well, you don't look too holy. You looked holier yesterday. I kid you not. In some circles... The plainer you look, the, the less embellished you are, the holier you must be. Any attention drawn to the flesh by wearing anything nice or, or painting yourself up in any way is just un, it's so unholy. So if you look really gnarly, it's like, oh, yeah, you must really be a holy person. <laughs> Either that or nuts. Religion emphasizes the outward. The gospel emphasizes the inward. Number two, religion emphasizes prohibition. What you can't do. The gospel emphasizes freedom. Freedom. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It was really here about what you can't do. You can't heal on the Sabbath. You can't walk with that mat on the Sabbath. It emphasizes prohibition. It was a righteousness of negatives. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. It's like the pious teenager in Sunday school who said, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do. Okay, well, what do you do? If you're only known for what you're against but never for what you're for, it's a righteousness of negatives. Number three, religion sets up barriers. The gospel breaks barriers. Religion sets up barriers. The gospel breaks barriers. You know where they were that day? They were in the temple that day. And specifically, Jesus was teaching in what's called the Court of the Gentiles, this huge open area where Jews, Gentiles, men, women, everybody can come. Anybody can come. Best place to teach a whole lot of people. But then there were other courts. One was called the Court of the Men. Only Jewish men could go there. Then there was the Court of the Women after the Court of the Gentiles. Jewish women could go there, but they couldn't go to the Court of the Men. Then there was a court just for the priests to go into. All of these divisions, because that's what religion does. It erects barriers, and the gospel tears them down. Paul the Apostle said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, Scythian, slave or free. We're all one in Christ. The cross levels everyone, even playing field. That's why our Lord Jesus said, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Fourth and finally, religion will say, Work your way. Work your way. You want to get to heaven? Work your way. You want to find God? Work your way. You work. You do this. You try. And if you really try hard and you're really sincere, that's what religion says. You know what Jesus says? He didn't say, Work your way. He says, I am the way. I am the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. 
No one comes to the Father unless He comes through me. Now, I want to end on this note. We are, we're done. I want to go back in our minds to Jesus in the temple teaching. Did you know that four times in the Gospels, Jesus asks a question to his audience? Here's the question. Have you never read? It's an interesting question. He's, usually he's talking to people who knew their Bibles, and he goes, um, don't you ever read your Bibles like when Moses said this or David said that? Have you never read? As if holding them accountable for knowing the truth. I want to encourage you as a Christian, become a learner. Become a thinker. Become familiar with the book. I was flying back to Albuquerque on a Southwest flight a while back. and There was somebody sitting next to me. He was sitting in the middle seat. I was on the end seat. And and he didn't give me eye contact. He was focused. Because he had a book he was reading and looking over and intently focused on his book. It was a book of crossword puzzles. And I, was, I marveled at him because this guy seemed like if there were a crossword puzzle king that we could coronate, I would nominate him. He was so fast and so focused. And, I mean, this was a huge page. And he had this ability to see patterns in the maze of would-be letters and just look at him and just put them down. And, and again, these were big pages, lots of words. Um, he told me his record was 33 words in nine minutes. I don't know what that means. Sound, I was impressed. <laughs> Knowing nothing about it, I was impressed. So um, as I was talking to him, he said, you know what the first thing I do whenever I pack for a flight, you know the first thing I pack? My book of crossword puzzles. He said, because it takes my mind off flying. I walked away from that a little bit convicted, thinking, when I pack, is this like the first thing I think about? God's truth. I've got to always passionately pursue what Jesus thought and lived was important. And it just made me want to be focused in my life, like this man was about his puzzles. Let's pray for that. Our Heavenly Father, life really is a puzzle. Jesus makes it plain and clear and shows us the difference between all of the smoke that religion causes seems conflicting and confusing and just the plain, simple truth of following a person in a personal relationship And coming to you not on our terms or making it up as we go along, but on your terms to follow authentically, really, humbly the Jesus of the Bible. Help us to do that. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.